I'll be preaching in the, our assurance of forgiveness, the one that is in our uh, in the bulletin in 1 John 1, 5 to 10. The title of my, uh, my sermon, or our sermon tonight, uh, this afternoon is uh, Diagnose Devotions Diligently. Diagnose Devotions Diligently. Uh, let's go to the background of the book. The book of 1 John, it was written by none other than the bearer of the name, the Apostle John. It said it was written near the first century to the Christians in Ephesus. The church has been plagued with a lot of dangers and difficulties of living in a godless pagan world. The society in general was influenced by immoral practices. They were lovers of human wisdom, as all Greek cities were, especially the exaltation of man and his abilities. To sum it up, they were lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. But that, uh, it seems like, you know, this day and age, isn't it? John, in writing this book, is concerned about one thing and one thing only, and that is authentic Christianity. This applies to them as this is to us right now. How can we be sure that we are real Christians in this culture that we live in? How are genuine Christians different from nominal Christians, those by name only? How can we differentiate true Christianity from the other fake and counterfeit beliefs? The letter of 1 John gives us a wonderful measuring stick whether we can test our own lives if we are true followers of Christ or not, if we are truly saved or not, whether we have genuine faith or not. This book in, in our text helps us diagnose our devotions diligently or how are we certain of our salvation or how are we made sure of our commitment to Christ and the church the apostle Paul wrote examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves 1 Corinthians 13 5 and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling Philippians 2 12 this sounds a little scary don't you think I'm like the rain or the snow in the Thanksgiving parade. But it should not make us uh, more serious, though. I mean, it is the urgency, the urgency of now. With fear and trembling, it says, to test whether we have genuine faith or if we are just going through the motions, especially in this day and age where there are so many lies, so many deceits, so many fakes and pretenders out there. John wrote this book with simplicity clear-cut, black and white, day and night. He uses a lot of imagery, contrasting words and repetitions over and over again, which I like to say, the redundancy of the redundant. On the flip side of this, the other side of the coin, this book, and in our text, holds the most wonderful good news and great assurance and certainty, certainty that we know the Lord Jesus and that we have salvation in his name. And that can never be taken away from us. 
This book is written to Christians so that Christians can live confidently before the Lord. John says this in chapter 5, verse 13 of the book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Before we continue on, let us uh, say a prayer. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Amen. I'm a child of the 90s. I believe it's the best decade ever. <laughs> and I know some of you will argue with me that probably the 60s or the 70s or even the 2000s or the 2010s are the best. But hear me out. The 90s. <laughs> I'm just talking about music in general, okay? Just music. Produce the Backstreet Boys, the Beastie Boys, Nirvana, Madonna, Michael Jackson, Oasis, Pearl Jam, among others. You all have Taylor Swift. We have Alanis Morissette. My taste for pop music died after the 90s. But there was one artist that shamed the whole music industry in that era. And some of you may remember the R&B duo called Millie Vanilli. Probably some of you will start Googling Millie Vanilli right now. They were doing their thing. They were dancing, moving, singing in one of their jam-packed uh, live concerts. Then suddenly, an issue with the hard drive caused the song to skip, to jump, to repeat, while they were singing to the words of the chorus, Girl, you know it's true, 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 true. They were caught lip-syncing. And that is the irony of it all. There was no true, true truth in their performances. They were lying. And that was the beginning of the end of Milli Vanilli. How about recently? Probably you guys heard of Anna Sorkin, a German woman who pretended to be a billionaire heiress named Anna Delvey, in which she lived in luxury and swindled millions of dollars from other socialites in New York. She was caught lying, and now she's in prison. It was said that she faked it until she could make it. Not with us, not with us. We cannot fake our Christian living and make it to the kingdom. This is where we separate the sheep from the wolves, the wheat from the chaff, the good fruit from the bad fruit. But how do we know? How are we sure of our standing with Christ? How do we diagnose our devotions diligently? I have three simple main points in the sermon. First is know your God. Know your God. Second is know the lies. Know the lies. And third is know the truth. Know the truth. The word know is mentioned 40 times and it's the second most repeated keyword in the book of 1 John. It is only second to the word love that is mentioned 46 times. 
I could have named these main points as love your God, love not the lie, or love the truth, but I'll stick to the know. To know is to understand, to be assured, to be able to distinguish right from wrong, the evil, the good from the evil, and the truth from the lie. So the first main point is know your God. True Christians know their God well. Verse 5 reads, God is light. It is interesting to note that John, in diagnosing our devotions, begins with God. He did not begin with a human experience or human interaction. You guys should examine this yourselves, or you guys should look out for this in yourselves. No, he starts with the nature and person of God. The Christian life begins with God, not us. And here's the description. God is light. Why light? This could be a description of the visible manifestation of God's glory and beauty, which are correct. But contextually, light here refers to the moral and intellectual excellence of God. God is absolute perfection. He's the most holy, pure, set apart, high, lifted up, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holiness is the characteristic of God's nature that is at the very core of his being, said R.C. Sproul. Not only that, but he's also absolute wisdom. We just sang immortal Invisible, God only wise. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Job 12:13. And Daniel uh, 2, 12, 20. Blessed be the name of our Lord forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Continuing, it says, In him is no darkness at all. Uh, if we are in the English grammar and also mathematics, this would have been wrong. No darkness is a double negative, which is positive, right? But in Greek, in Greek, it signifies emphasis, a strong expression of negation, which is actually stated, there is no darkness in him, none. Not only is God light, most holy and most wise, but there is also absolutely no darkness, no shade, no speck or stain, In him, there is no fault, failure, or falsehood. In him, there is no deceit, deviation, or dishonesty in him. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. A.W. Tozer wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So the question is, how much do we know God? How do we spend our time in reading the Bible and praying to Him? We cannot know Him him if we do not diligently search for Him. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. And He rewards rewards those who seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 We cannot set our devotions to Him if we do not properly understand Him. The bedrock truth 
of our Christian authenticity begins with the proper knowledge of God. Moving on, the second main point is how to, diagno- in how to diagnose our devotions diligently is know the lie. Chris, uh, genuine Christians are aware of the sin and the lie around him or her and stays away from it. John is a gifted author, is very pastoral, pastoral or father-like, probably because he wrote this in his old age. In writing this letter, as it goes cyclical, it goes around as if repeating the same ideas, going back and forth to the already mentioned truths. Every repetition goes higher and higher, and, it, and it's good to us, for us, to be reminded again and again as we are fickle-minded and easily distracted. But for the sake of pressing down, compacting the same ideas, we will tackle verses 6, 8, and 10, which begins with the if-we-say statements that introduce a false claim or a lie. But before we dive in further, there is another background to the earlier background that I mentioned, a background within a background. It will help us understand better why John wrote this letter. You see, there was a heretical group called, called the, the Gnostics. It's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, the Gnostics that appeared and has been igniting trouble in the church. The Gnostics believed in dualism that says, whatever is in the spirit is good, and whatever is physical is evil, or it's non-consequential, or it's not important. They believe that because the body is a, is a physical being, it is evil. It is in this reasoning that they are devoid of moral values. You can do anything with your body. But as long as the spirit inside you is good, you're good. It was also, they say, in the spirit that has the secret knowledge or higher intelligence, which is the key to their salvation. They claimed as if a spirit spoke to them that they or that they should do this and that, relying more on emotions and chance than the written word. Going back to the first point, that's why John used light as a primary description of God. He wants to reject their claim of self-awareness, of self-wisdom. God is light because he is the source of absolute wisdom and true knowledge and illumination, and there is nothing else. Also in their beliefs, the Gnostic rejected the humanity of Christ. They denied the virgin birth, the sinless life that Jesus walked on this earth. That led them, of course, to deny the cross, the death of Christ. No body, no death, no resurrection. Very much opposed to the essentials of our Christian doctrine. And, and this is important. Uh, during their time, the Gnostic message is very well received by the world in their culture, in society. They held the popular views in life. They help you become successful, healthy, and wealthy. They were pampering your flesh, stroking your ego. You can have the world, and you can have the Lord in one plate. Why not? You can have it all, your best life now. Not only do the big boys with the most toys win, 
but they also serve a church. Now, does this sound more like the health, wealth, prosperity, some charismatic and Pentecostal uh, Iglesia ni Manalo groups that are prevalent here and now? The heresy is alive and well in this age. They may not have embraced all of Gnosticism, but their roots stem deep in their beliefs. It is for this reason that John used the if we say statements. They are big in words, but their actions contradict otherwise. True, authentic Christians know the lies and do not associate with them. The first lie is the false fellowship. It says there in verse 6 that if someone claims to be in fellowship with God and yet the way he lives is characterized by sinful behavior, he is lying to his teeth. And it's not practicing the truth. There is conflict between speech and his conduct. The word walk expressed here is the same as the earlier study that we had in Ephesians. And the rest of, of course, the rest of the Bible, it signifies the person's character, conduct, way of living. The verb is in the present tense, walk. And therefore conveys habitual lifestyle. You cannot walk in darkness and be practicing in the truth. At the same time, there is no fellowship if our interests, our enjoyments, and delights are different from Christ. The fellowship of the ring will not be the fellowship of the ring if their sole purpose was not to destroy the ring. Notice here also that the truth is not something to be believed only, but it is something to be lived out. This is vital as it sets a stage for the rest of the passage. Spurgeon the great theologian was right when he said, there may be all the difference in the world between saying and being, between saying and doing. True, genuine Christians know the lies and stay away from them. The second lie is the false doctrine. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, this is indeed a bold statement by the false teachers. Have you seen these this, this teachers, these false teachers in the television or in YouTube? Man, they, they don't talk about sin. Rarely will they talk about sin. They, they play softball or flag football when it comes to sin. Because if they do, their ratings will drop. They want to get rid of sin, of guilt, of any wrongdoing, anything that will make a person down. But what did the Bible say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Here is a brief biblical doctrine of sin. Every human being that enters this world at birth has a sin nature. It means that we are set on or inclined to sin. Whether we are old enough to understand right and wrong, we will choose to sin. We can't stop ourselves from sinning. We have a nature to sin. In one essence, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We inherited our sin nature from our parents, then our parents to their parents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. We do not have to teach our children to sin. They are or will be bent on to selfishness or, and pride, aside from mama and dada, one of the first words that come out of our children are, 
mind. And it says there that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. More literally, it, it means we continually lead ourselves astray. We then are getting farther and farther away from the truth, and it is entering a dangerous, a dangerous territory. True, genuine followers of Christ know the lies and avoid them. The third lie is the false righteousness. Verse 10 says, If we say we have not sinned, this is in the perfect tense, which means we do not commit acts of sin or we do not sin. The lie is getting stronger and even getting more ridiculous. They're claiming that they have reached a state of perfection. Or on the other hand, this can also mean that they're blame-shifting or evading their responsibility, in which nowadays, I think people are more inclined to do. It is the lessening or downplaying of our sins. It is rationalizing our sins. Remember Saul's response in 1 Samuel 15 when prophet Samuel found out that he did not totally destroy the Amalekites, when Saul didn't destroy the Amalekites but kept the best for sacrifice. Saul was rationalizing his sin that led to God's rejection of him and the beginning of his downfall. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Here is a kernel of truth. If we hide our sins, God will expose them. Just look at the story of King David trying to conceal his sin with Bathsheba. It led to even more sin, greater sin, to the point of Uriah's murder. But God, through the prophet Nathan, exposed him. You are the man, Nathan said of David, not as a high five, praiseworthy, you the man, but you are the man in a condemning manner. The result of this lie is getting more unthinkable to the point of calling God a liar, which is an utter blasphemy, a total contradiction of God's nature and character. And also, his word is not in us, meaning the message and the person of Jesus, as Jesus being the word, is not in him, a total contradiction of a Christian's true nature and character. So how are we doing so far in our, our diagnosis? The third and last point is know the truth. A genuine believer of Christ knows, understands, and obeys the truth. Read with me verses 7 and 9. And I know that the elders have been encouraging us to, to memorize the whole text of 1 John 1, 5 to 10. But if you're a little uh, passive like me, although I, I memorized the whole six verses, these two are the most important. I encourage you to memorize these two verses. Let's begin in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. Clearly the opposite of verse 6, that is claiming to have fellowship with God, but is also committing sin. Here in verse 7, it says that if we live God's lives and believe, behave as Christians, 
should behave because that is how God conducts himself, then we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship here is primarily with Christ that leads to fellowship with other believers. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship that means holding something in common, a joint participation or a shared partnership. Fellowship is more than an association. It is It is more than being in a social club or fraternity or sorority. I hear, heard uh, you know, years ago that fellowship means two fellows in one ship. As it is true, clarifying it further, it is deeper friendship, like that of David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. And not only that, having fellowship with Christ cleanses us from all sin. The cleansing we receive here refers to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' death on the, clo- on the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9.22 We tend to think of Jesus' death on the cross as a one-time cleansing of our sins the moment we come to him for salvation initially, and this is certainly true. But we need to reflect also on the continuous ongoing benefits that the cross of Christ has given us. And that is the day-to-day, moment-by-moment, cleansing and purifying us every time we sin. That is why John writes this in the present tense. In theological terms, the blood of Jesus cleanses us in our justification, the one-time event that happens the moment we we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, and also the blood of Jesus purifies us in our sanctification the ongoing process of our everyday of our everyday lives as we become more like him more like Jesus and the incredible thing here is that when John uh, wrote that Jesus blood purifies us from sin he also refers to both the forgiveness of sin and the removing of guilt the removing of guilt that sin causes then we can truly sing. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Verse 9, in knowing the truth, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness this is where we tap the brakes we will slow down and focus here on one of the most beautiful verses about the assurance of forgiveness confessing our sin is indeed a sign of genuine followers of, of Christ when we become Christians we do not stop sinning I had the privilege of helping someone in his acceptance of Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And when I asked him if I have any questions, he told me that he's afraid that he cannot be perfect and that he will still continue to sin again and again. I'm glad I was meditating and, uh, and reading much on this uh, one John. And I... And I and I told him that, uh, you know, Christians, 
A Christian is not sinless, one word, but he or she will sin less, two words, and less and less and less. True, genuine Christians have heightened awareness of, their, of sin in their lives. It is like we are hypersensitive to sin. At moments, we feel like we are the chief of sinners. A true, authentic follower of Christ also are quick to confess their sin. We do not pile up our sins and confess them at the end of the week or so, or our delay tactics, it won't work. It says there in Psalm 32 that Andy just read, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The concealment of sin brings mental anguish and physical torment. Joy and sin cannot live together. When sin comes into our lives, joy moves out. So Christians, be quick to confess. Psalm 32, 5, there can be a, a prayer for us. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And what does it mean to confess our sin? The word confess means to say the same, to say the same thing as, to say the thing, same thing as. When we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God that what he says about our sin is true. Or in other words, it is coming to the place where we honestly agree with God about our sin. When God says our sin grieves him or hurts him or makes him angry, remember even God's anger is righteous and good, then it is. Man calls sin accident. God calls it abomination. Man calls it error. God calls it enmity. Man calls it weakness. God calls it wickedness. We cannot sugarcoat sin or downplay it or rationalize it. Confession means truly repenting of our sin and genuinely seeking forgiveness. To whom do we confess? We confess our sin to God. Our sin is first and foremost against him. As King David in Psalm 51 says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now how about confessing in a church? Or in public setting. I believe the general principle here is private sin should be confessed privately and then public sin should be confessed publicly. I don't think it will be right uh, for us to confess private sins publicly as in passing the microphone every Sunday service. If that is the case, I will vo volunteer uh, Ian or, or Russell first before, I, before me. And perhaps some of you, from some of us will ask, I thought that when I accepted Jesus to be my Lord and Savior and confess and ask for forgiveness of my sins, I thought that it was enough. Why do I need to, to confess my sins daily or at the moment of my awareness of our sins? It is indeed true. It is true. 
that the moment that we are accepted in the kingdom of God, we are forgiven of our sins. And that is what is called the judicial forgiveness. The death of Jesus on the cross covers all our sins, past, present, future. This is the one time for all time event. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And in Micah 7.18 and 19, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And as, as Trevor has, uh, has said, God will put a no fishing, no diving sign there too. When we sin as a Christian, we are not out of the family of God. Our relationship with God now changes from a condemning judge to a loving father. We are now given a seat at, at, at the table. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. But sin does break fellowship. Sin breaks the heart of our father. Sin takes us out of fellowship with him. We now have to move out of the adult dining table and sit on the kids' table. In, the, in our family, in the Pedrosa, Velasco, and Ruiz families, if you if offended someone, you get the silent treatment. And I think that's, that's with us all, I think. It, it is God, it's the same thing as our Heavenly Father, too. With unconfessed sins, it feels like our prayers only reach to the rooftop of our houses and not all the way to heaven. And we wonder why we are not effective in our witnessing to unbelievers. And we wonder why we are, we question why we are not fruitful in our ministries. That is why we need to confess our sins regularly. This is what we call the parental or relational forgiveness. We must continue to confess our sins to God, not so that we can enter heaven, as this is already settled, but that our relationship will, with Him will be kept and maintained or repaired and restored. This we do, making sure that there's nothing between God and ourselves in a relational level. And this is highlighted in no other than the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and forgive us our debts. The word forgive is in the present tense as it is continual and ongoing act. It's a continual and ongoing act of a true, genuine child of God. This we seek diligently. The smile, the countenance of our Father's face shining on us. And when we confess our sins, God acts. God forgives. Just think about the words faithful and just for a moment. God is faithful. 
means he is faithful to his promises concerning his willingness to forgive sins. Let me say that again. He is faithful to his promises concerning his willingness to forgive sins. That is God's faithfulness. And God is also just. When he forgives our confessed sin, just means righteous. God, as to his nature, always does what is just and right. His righteousness requires that he keeps his promise to give all who confess their sins. Jesus' death on the cross made all this possible. When we confess our sins, God is faithful. He will forgive, and He is just. He can forgive based on Christ's shed blood. The penalty is paid. The guilt is taken away. Restoration and renewal follow since God also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And here's my connection to the celebration of thanksgiving. Proper confession of sin always leads to heart-abounding thanksgiving. Proper confession of sin always leads to heart-abounding thanksgiving. You just look at our bulletin, and you can see there the prayer of thanksgiving and thankfulness. So there is that connection there. And also, uh, just look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The tax collector came home justified as he confessed his sin the right way. The Pharisee came home troubled. So, as spiritual clinicians, how are we in our diagnosis of ourselves, of our devotions? Let us get rid of this fake pretender's attitude. Remember, a true, genuine Christian knows their God well and seek Him diligently. The lies, He knows the lies and stays away from them. And a true, authentic Christian knows the truth of real fellowship and confesses their sins regularly. Let us pray. Father, we ask that the truth of your word may sink deep in our hearts and minds, that it will move us to, our our entire being, Lord God, will move us to, to apply it in our lives. This for the glory of your name. Amen.